Hello, I'm Michael Bott. And I'm Rupert Soskin. And this is the Standing With Stones Megalithic Podcast. This podcast is only made possible by monthly donations from our listeners who've supported us through Patreon.com. You can become one of our patrons for as little as a dollar a month by visiting Patreon.com slash Standing With Stones. Welcome to the ninth Standing With Stones monthly podcast, and this month things are looking up. Oh yes, this month's main topic is another one that we could talk about for hours on end. And probably will. Actually, I bet you by the time we've got to the end of this um, uh, this recording, um, we'll have decided to make this um, a 90-minute special, something like that. We'll see what happens. Or a part two. Or a part two. The thing is, this month we're looking to the stars and sinking our teeth into the wonders of archaeoastronomy. Yes, oh, for a time machine. Yes, yes. What is archaeoastronomy anyway? Yes, what is archaeoastronomy? What is is archaeoastronomy? But first, but first, as usual, starting off the show with... um, Well, let's push a boundary. Well, you push a boundary anyway. What have we got? (laughs) Well, actually, not going back all that far this time, but uh, something something about this really caught my imagination. This is the earliest known use of vanilla. Discovered, uh, yeah, discovered in a three thousand six hundred year old tomb in Israel. Now, what makes it exciting is that before this particular discovery. The use of vanilla was thought to have originated in Mexico about a thousand years ago. So not only are we pushing back the history of human use of vanilla, but we've shifted it to half a world away from where we previously thought. It's, it's always interesting, isn't it? And it, it, I, I tell you what, it's always very reassuring when we find evidence in the distant past of things that mm. are fundamentally unnecessary, you know, <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. like we do now. <laughs> so Absolutely. It's, yeah, but it says a lot about a society that they can invest so much effort into pleasure or ritual. And um, but, uh, what what form was it founded? I presume we're not talking about ice cream. Here. <laughs> no, it was, uh, it was residues inside three jugs. And analysis showed that they were with plant oils, um, probably olive oil. Mm. Um, And an interesting aspect here is that vanilla comes from, people probably know, uh, vanilla comes from vanilla orchids, of which there are many species. I I think there's over 100 species of uh, of vanilla orchid. Uh, But none of them come from anywhere near Israel. So that shows once again that trade over long distances was a common occurrence. Oh, that old thing again. <laughs> trade. My goodness. So how far did had it come? Have they got any idea where the where it may have come from? Well, good question. There there are a number of possibilities and the closest is probably East Africa. Uh, but also can't rule out places like India because known trade routes did exist. Um, And from a chemical analysis point of view, uh, the most likely candidates are Mesopotamia or India. That's the closest, (laughs) uh, genetically, that's the closest um, orchid that they've found. Um, Tell you what, though, if... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I'll apologise. If I can put my 
grouchy hat on for a moment. Oh, the, no. the, yeah, I know, I'm sorry. It's just the scientists uh, involved here, when they were talking about uh, their findings, they said that the vanilla could have been used for perfume, food flavourings, or even embalming the dead. In other words, they don't have a clue. They might, as well, they might just as well have said nothing at all, or they probably used it for all the same things that we use it for today. They basically well, just words saying nothing. All right. Yeah, well, I suppose if they had only picked one, at least it would have been an opinion as opposed to a statement of the bleeding obvious. <laughs> but, exactly. But, but, exactly. On, but on the other hand, how, how would you know? I mean, uh, I, I did a Google search for vanilla olive oil. It seems vanilla-infused olive oil is a thing. Yes. And, and, and quite a delicious one at that. So even if the archaeologists can't be a bit more definite, I'll stick the neck out and say they're <laughs> using it three and a half thousand years because it flipping tastes good. <laughs> yeah. How, how's, how's, how's the grouchy hat doing then? The grouchy hat. Well, well, all right. If I take off my grouchy hat, if I take oh, off my grouchy hat, then we can go into the news. <laughs> and having removed my grouchy hat, it's, it's on to the news. So, what's first up this month, Michael? Ooh, up being the operative word. Uh huh. Now, this is very different. Nine podcasts in. This is the ninth podcast. How many times have we said this is very different? <laughs> Quite a few. Yeah. Anyway, uh, bear with us. I'm sure we'll be saying this is very different many more times in the future. But it always is. Anyway, archaeologists in the Middle East have found evidence for a cosmic airburst dating back 3,700 years, which they suspect wiped out a 200-square-mile area north of the Dead Sea. Oh. Well, okay, so by airburst, you mean like the Tunguska event? The Tunguska event, very much like that. Actually, tell us about the Tunguska event, because... What, in Siberia? Put it in, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, a bit of context required there. Uh, 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 I believe uh, 1908. Uh, yes, indeed. And uh, it flattened... I can't remember. It's something like, and I'm only going from memory here, it's something like 500 square miles, was it? 700, was just, seven and five mm. or 700, something like that. So just, although this is a lot smaller than the Tunguska mm. event, a cosmic airburst is when a comet or meteor explodes before impact. So it creates insanely high temperatures in a very confined region. And rather than a, an impact that would cause far more widespread and catastrophic damage. So the findings uh, came from both pottery and geology. The geology implies that the blast stripped away topsoils, which would have destroyed any farming and agriculture, yeah, obviously, yeah. as well as killing anything and everything in the region. And the surfaces of the pieces of pottery they found have been turned into glass. Wow. Apparently, fragments of zircon were vaporized, and that requires a temperature of at least 4,000 degrees Celsius. Wow. Which so, um, so, is quite hot. <laughs> just a little bit. So where was this again? It's a 200-mile area just immediately north of the Dead Sea. Um, so, you know, all this is very new, and research is ongoing. Wow. Oh, interesting. That It's interesting that... It, that's the early dynastic period in Egypt when uh, when Saqqara was built. So that's the oldest of the uh, the pyramids, and it makes you wonder if anybody's looking into possible 
correlations in Middle Eastern art. I know that Egypt itself is a fair way from uh, from the Dead Sea, but uh, but can you imagine if that happened at night? You know, if yeah. a meteor or a comet was coming down at night, that would have been visible for a vast distance. That would have created quite something i bet they would have heard it too yeah but as, as i said you know the research is ongoing so as uh, as always there'll be links on the website if you want to find out more uh, it's funny how things come together um i have a find from exactly the same part of the world but a fair bit older and uh, as is often the case this is constant farming and plowing really, does tend to turn up artefacts from time to time. And this is from Hebron on the West Bank. And uh, this find is a 9,000-year-old mask. Oh, yes, yes. I think I saw this. But yeah. amazingly, it's carved from stone. Yeah. At first glance, I, I, I thought it, was, it looked like it was pottery. I thought yeah. it was made from clay. But no, it's stone. And it, it must have taken a fair bit of effort to produce. Do, do, we, do we know if it was meant to be worn? I mean, you'd, you'd think it would be too heavy. I mean, as I said, I've seen the photographs, but as is so often the case, it's so so hard to get an idea of how it actually yes. might feel in in the hand. You know, yeah, well, God, it's, but the, it's funny. Isn't the it? expression it, on that face, though, yeah, it's eerily expressionless, isn't it? With the outlines of teeth around the mouth. But it's a good point about the weight. I haven't read anything about how heavy it is. But um, but it does have holes drilled in the edges, which would Im certainly imply oh, right. that they're places for ties. It rather would. Um, you know, although yeah, something that made me wonder, although the expressionless face, you know, maybe they were even tied to corpses. Mm. You know, it's just a thought. You know, it, I don't know. It's just weird. Even but a slightly actually, morbid this... thought, Rupert. <laughs> Yes, I'm sorry. Yes. Can't help well, it. Cheer up, mate. <laughs> but this is actually this is the fifteenth of these to be found um, over a very long period of time. It has to be said the first was found back in 1890. Oh, there's more of these. This is not not a one-off. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I see. There's 15 right. of them apparently. But this is the first uh, to be uncovered in the last 35 years. Okay. But. It's intriguing, though, isn't it? For, for them to have found so many, I mean, all right, you could say that 15 isn't a vast amount, but the point is to have found 15 items that are essentially the same, they were clearly ritualistic and what? important enough to... What? I know, and important so enough did to... Did you just say time. they were clearly ritualistic? I did say they were clearly ritualistic. I'm I having a dig. <clears throat> I'm having a dig. Carry on. I know, <laughs> and rightly so. But I, I was trying to think, you know, of any other possible way to describe it. But they, they must be. I mean, to to make for them to be a thing. Mm. So, that, so we found fifteen. There must be plenty more. Well, there must have been plenty more. Yeah. Um. So, if it was something that was made regularly and for a purpose, whatever that might have been. Yeah, I mean, they're carved in stone. That's a lot of time. Yeah, wonder what you know, made if them. If they were just knocked up in pottery in a couple of hours, you could imagine yeah. it, but um, but in stone. Yeah, makes them, uh, yeah, I wonder what made them choose the stone over something like wood, which uh, would have been um, 
somewhat easier, I think. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, may- maybe that's exactly the point. Ah, you know, true. anybody yeah. could make yeah. a wooden one. So the stone took that much more effort. Maybe that's what made it special. It's, uh, it's maybe intent. Maybe indeed. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, yes, I'm going to maintain the theme here and um, stay mm. in the Middle East, um, Egypt, to be a bit more precise. But this is another example of modern technology giving us new insights into old discoveries. Although Egyptian, this is actually from the British Museum, and they found the earliest, oh, right. earliest, earliest yet known figurative tattoos on a couple of mummies that have been in the museum for about a hundred years. Right. Oh, come on. So what, what has the tech thrown up this time? Well, um, these are actually natural mummies. I, I mean, they're, they're just uh, desiccated corpses found in desert sands, um, known as Jebelin Man A and Jebelin Woman. That's G-E-B-E-L-E-I-N, Jebelin. Is that Gibbelin or Jebelin? Jebelin, yeah. yeah. Scientists have rescanned every visible patch of their skin for signs of body modification, and what looked like simple smudges under natural light have been revealed as horned animals under infrared on the shoulder of Jebelin Man. Now, right. now these mummies are over 5,000 years old, so that has pushed back tattooing in Africa by a thousand years or so anyway, but these are the earliest figurative tattoos as opposed to simple patterns known anywhere. Yeah, even yet more pushing back the boundaries. Love it. Oh, we do love to push back a boundary. <laughs> yes, it's a, now, hang on. I'm, I'm not a tattoo man myself. And I've never felt the urge particularly to have one, but funny enough, this feels like quite a significant pushing back of a boundary to me. Mm. You know, you, you just you just know if something like this is found on just one of the few archaeological samples we have that it, that it's very very unlikely to be unique. Yes, and and the practice must have been well embedded, cultural speaking, in the period to which the example relates. Interestingly, the woman's tattoos are simple patterns, such as a row of S shapes. But they reckon that the man's are possibly a wild bull and a Barbary sheep, which were both common motifs in art at the time. So so these are roughly contemporary with um, Ertzi then. Oh, yes. Uh, our Iceman, because yeah. he had quite a few, a few tattoos, didn't he? Oh, isn't it nice to make these sort of contemporaneous links? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, our favourite Iceman, um, dated to 5,300 years old, so pretty much the same age, yeah, yeah. Of course, his tats were very simple markings as well, so these new finds really are unique for our knowledge of the people. Yeah, it's fantastic. You know, that makes me wonder how much more we can discover using new tech on old specimens. You know, I mean, talking of of, um, Ertzi, I was genuinely excited. This is a little while ago now, but I I was really excited when their DNA tests showed that he had 19 living relatives <laughs> in Austria. You know, all, oh, <laughs> all sorts goodness. of stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Impossible yeah. without modern technology. Yeah, so true. I mean, we, 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 uh, <laughs> we, we could have people reclaiming ancient treasures as lost family. <laughs> <in America>. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, I, I better get my DNA tested. <laughs> 
Yes. Have, you, have you done yours? I'm Tutankhamun's Carmen's great, 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 great nephew. Yes. Yes, yes. I'll have that, please. <laughs> well, well, look, if you'll forgive me, I have a slightly fanciful one here because it's Christmas. Fanciful what? Sorry. Oh, a fanciful bit of news. Okay, right. Okay, off you go. <laughs> it's unicorns. Yes, of course it is, Rupert. <laughs> well... Actually, we're in the uh, we're in the wrong section of the show. That's later. Whims- <laughs> whimsy, whimsy comes at the end, whimsy. mate. It's not whimsy because it's wonderful. Actually, you know, it could have been oh, whimsy. Go it's on. not whimsy. Uh, here, we you know people have debated for centuries where the unicorn myths may have originated. You know, I mean, some people suggesting that they may have been poorly described rhinos, and their opponents saying that it can't be that because rhino horns <laughs> are on their noses. Uh, and then other people yes. saying that it was it was just all made up stuff anyway, you know all that kind of stuff. Well, the thing is that there was an ancestor to the rhino from Siberia, right? Called Elasmotherium sibericum, which did have a single horn growing from its forehead, and they were understandably dismissed as the lost unicorn because all fossil evidence showed that they became extinct around 200,000 years ago or more, which is way, way before there were humans in the region. Well, they found new fossils, didn't they? <laughs> of course they did. Yes. The new fossils <laughs> date to 35,000 years ago, yeah. which is clearly well inside the parameters for them being present with humans. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, okay. although, I mean, <clears throat> you know, we're, we are as sure as we can be that they... Uh, must have been extinct by the last glacial maximum, so around 20-ish thousand years ago. Uh, but to be fair, they were pretty huge animals, I mean, much bigger than modern rhinos, but they did have a horn in the right place, and they were contemporary with humans. So if nobody objects, I'm now officially saying unicorns were real, <laughs> and they probably tasted delicious. <laughs> you like what is this this is <clears throat> welcome to standing with stones the paleontological <laughs> podcast have i just invented a new word paleontological no all oh, right okay no what you just said probably <laughs> tastes delicious that's probably politically incorrect at some I bet level they did, somewhere <laughs> yes anyway anyway actually have you seen pictures of um, these uh, wonderful beasts what the hell are they called last <laughs> Elasmotherium sibericum. Sibericum, uh, in, indeed. I mean, there are illustrations of it. Um, they were awesome. They were awesome. It's they just they didn't have just a horn. I mean, that's not a horn. What, how would you describe that? I mean, that is that is full on alien um, weaponization. That is growing out of his forehead. They were magnificent uh, beasts. Yes, I, that, I, t- I tell you what, that, that would that would have been a lot of work to get to delicious. Do you reckon confronting one of those? Oh, t- confronting one of those. Well, if you can bring I down a say, mammoth, I, I think. Well, I look, we'll put some pictures of um, of the beast. On, <laughs> yeah, we'll do the, that. Uh, we'll do that. Yeah, in the show notes, <laughs> and I think people might see that uh, confronting one of these things might have been a little bit of a problem, no matter how <laughs> delicious they. <laughs> oh, fantastic. <clears throat> onward, onward. Onward. 
So, Rupert, um, who chose the main theme of archaeoastronomy for this uh, this month's podcast? No, I'm blaming you entirely. It was me, was it? (laughs) I think it was. Um, Well, yeah, all right, fair dues. It just... (laughs) I probably just said, let's do archaeoastronomy, because it sounded like a cool word. <laughs> well, to be fair, we did make a list before Early we on. started any of the podcasts. We started yeah. a massive list of all the things that we could talk about, uh, and I'm pretty sure it was on that list, but you are, oh, you are definitely the one who said, let's do that this <laughs> month. So, yeah, it's entirely your fault. Oh, little did they know what they've done. <laughs> uh, it's all good fun. So that out of the way, um, the word archaeoastronomy, what does it mean for you? Well, do you know what? I'm I'm actually going to toss it back at you because one of the things that we were talking about recently, and for people who don't know, uh, in fact, you know a lot more about him than I do, but uh, Mr. Ruggles, the the lord of archaeoastronomy, really. But he, he defined it, I think, in such a beautiful way that um, I, I think you might as well okay. give people his definition okay. because I think it says it all, really. Yeah. Um, we're talking about uh, Professor Clive Ruggles, uh, Emeritus Professor of Archaeoastronomy at Leicester University. Um, and when asked in um, an interview I, I listened to, uh, what is archaeoastronomy, he said, it's the study of how other cultures understand what they see in the sky. It, it says it in a way that, I mean, to be honest, I would never have thought of defining it that way, but no. you can't improve on that definition. I think it's, imp- uh, I think it's important. that the, the definition is really, really, really important because it means that archaeoastronomy is not studying people doing astronomy in the past, not in the way that we understand it. Archaeoastronomy no. is not a thing that happened in the past. It's a study from our perspective of now of what was what we think might have been in their minds in in the past it seems obvious but it's an important sort of distinction to to make yes and it's so hard to get into the minds of our ancestors because not least of all uh, not least of all the fact that that we now have an understanding of these spheres floating around in space and of course back then there would have been no reason to to see the world in that way so they were just on as far as they were concerned a flat earth and they were looking at these lights moving in the sky and trying to make sense of them so what so would you it would think? seem well that that is why um that uh, archaeoastronomy modern archaeoastronomy itself uh, well, there's no such thing other than modern archaeoastronomy. But archaeoastronomy <laughs> does include yes. the discipline or the science of ethno-astronomy, which, of mm-hmm. course, is the study of how um, uh, cultures contemporary with us now uh, view the stars and the cosmos. And it's only by... Mm. It, it's it's a, a leverage to understanding what they might have been up to in the past, seeing how... Mm. <clears throat> ethnic cultures uh, relate to the stars. It gives us kind of a lever. It gives, gives a kind of foothold when interpreting um, what we can see in the in our ancient monuments. But let's try and move on a gear. Let's sort of gear this up a bit. 
um, <laughs> talking about astronomy itself. What aspects of astronomy would have been apparent to our ancestors um, in regards to the sun, the moon, the stars, uh, or what have you? What, what, what particular characteristics of uh, the sun, moon, and the stars gets represented in the monuments, and why? I think the fundamental is the awareness that all those lights in the sky are moving. Yeah. That they are going, that's, they are moving the, across the, the base sky of it, isn't it? all the time. So whichever, it, whichever you know, whether it's the, the moon or the sun or the stars or the planets, because they were aware, mm. obviously, that there were certain lights that didn't move at the same speed as the others. Yeah. But they're all moving in the same way. Yeah, they and are the starting in the east, and they are going yeah, to the west. And that's a, what they a, do every day. A periodicity is that the word about them? I wonder how long yes. it, does it take you to notice that, apart from the sun rising and setting at the end of the day, that it, the sun changes where it rises mm. and sets, as does the moon, and of course the stars also have a shifting aspect in the sky. It would be helpful to nail these things to the floor for ourselves because, you know, living the way we do, um, we don't necessarily, we're not that aware of the things we're actually talking about here, necessarily. Obviously, the sun is lower in the sky in winter and it's higher in the sky and hotter in, in, in the summer. Um, but what aspects of that... Um, are the most notable, noticeable things on a clear horizon. It's the fact that the sun rises at a closer point in the south, close, closer to the place where it sets in the winter. It's not just lower, mm -hmm. but the points of rising and setting are closer together. Um, excuse me if I'm, you know, this is, you, you know this stuff. Um, but I think it's important to... Um, kind of ground it in some way. And the same goes for the moon in a different uh, different kind of sequence. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for example, what is the solstice? You know, it's all, it's all very well as talking about Stonehenge and the sun rising mm. um, over or close to the heel stone at um, midwinter sunrise. But what does that actually mean? Well, it's the, it's the central point, isn't it? You know, that, that that's the point where if, if you're talking about winter solstice, yeah. That is the the point at which, from that, uh, from that moment, the days begin to get longer. Yes, and the points on the horizon at which the sun rises and sets begin to get further apart again mm -hmm. th throughout the year until the uh, until the summer solstice, at which point they start to get come together again. And yes. uh, the same same thing for the moon, although the cycle over which it happens is much much shorter. So although you may have, uh, you know, the yearly cycle of the sun, the cycle of the moon, and we're not talking about the phases of the moon, like full moon, waxing and waning moon, but the points on the horizon at which the moon rises and sets uh, alter at a very much faster rate. Um, and the period of yes. that is about 27 days. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, yes, a, a lunar month essentially. So yes. I'm just trying. I'm just trying to, you know, make sure that we we've got a little bit of an idea on our heads uh, on the complications of what we're talking about. Not only that, of course, but um, in the last five thousand years, 
the apparent um, space, uh, the, the places where sun, moon, and stars will rise and set um, um, have altered uh, over the past uh, 5,000 years. Uh, the sun, a little bit. Yes. Uh, they're, the they're, stars, quite it, a lot. You know, essentially, it's just with the wobble of the Earth, the precession with that wobble of the Earth as it spins um, over 20, what is it, 26,000 years, that that wobble means that we have a, a shifting of the star that is directly above the North Pole as far as it's possible to uh, to measure. Um and and does that does that wobble uh, occur in relationship to the the solar the uh, the plane of the solar system, or the, it's not the solar system that wobbles, is it? No, no, no. The the solar system no, is no. Uh, is a perfectly stable thing. In fact, <clears throat> disk, yeah. you you really you almost need to regard the stars as background wallpaper with yeah, ever yeah. such slight movement over a very 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 long time, and okay. th so that. The planets moving around the Earth, or moving around, <laughs> moving around the Sun, the Earth, as far as our ancestors were concerned, that the planets have their own uh, sequence that they're moving around uh, the, the, the solar system, but that whole thing is moving in relation to the background wallpaper of the stars. The point I was trying to make was that, uh, in terms of how we look at um, <clears throat> the alignments of ancient monuments, that we've got to make an adjustment for that wobble, for that time. And the adjustments we have to make are different for the sun and they're different for the stars. And the adjustment is, is, uh, is much greater for the stars than it is for, for the sun. Our intention is not to make this uh, complicated for you, our <laughs> dear listeners. It's important to understand that uh, astronomy is relatively complicated to understand. You know, the rel relative motion and the sun, the moon, the stars, and the planets, it's and all the rest. Vastly of it. complicated. But the interesting thing is that in the past, more a, a much higher percentage of the population would have been taking notice of what was going on than. Currently, this, I think this is the irony. We know so much about the night sky because we've got telescopes, because we've got radio telescopes. We've got all the apparatus you could wish for in terms of understanding the sky and understanding the planets and what they are and understanding stars and the universe and galaxies, etc. The irony is that the sh it's a shrinking number of people, a, 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 a number of the population that are at the forefront of extracting this information. The rest mm. of us, we don't see any of it. Why? Because our skies are flooded with light. We are just profoundly unaware of the movement of the heavens, culturally, I mean, uh, in yeah. comparison with our ancestors. And that is a, mm. a major thing where people would have been aware on a daily or nightly, if you like, basis, they would have been Absolute, aware of what was rising. If any one of us, you know, uh, is fortunate enough to go somewhere in the world where there is a dark night sky and you can observe the stars, it's an overwhelming experience. Mm. Uh, but that would be the experience most every day for our ancestors. Yes, and That's more profoundly so because globally they, our yes. skies are milky now in comparison yeah. to how they were all those thousands of years ago. Yeah. 
So before yeah. there were huge numbers of people that were burning fires and all that smoke going up into the uh, atmosphere, which has made a difference, uh, that the way our ancestors saw the sky and the clarity of mm. the sky back then was profoundly, profoundly different. To us. Different. We lived completely different lives mm. in terms of our feeling of relationship to the night and day to mm. you know the the moon obviously and the, and the stars so what i'm saying is that that is an immense difference we've got to appreciate that in order to begin the, uh, to understand the power of the driver that had them do all the work necessary to embody at least part of their understanding of the motions of the of uh, the celestial bodies in um, the megalithic monuments uh, yeah. that uh, we see. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's a powerful thing. It, it it would make sense. It would make absolute sense to frame the cosmos because everybody could see it. Everybody could yeah. experience it at some at some level. Yeah. I, I, one of the things that uh, that fascinates me that i you know i i have i don't have an opinion on it i just have a fascination of it is you know who was it for example you know if you take any of the sites where so you know this one so you have a, a site that is aligned on the uh, on the winter solstice who was it Say that stonehenge for example <laughs> yeah. how many generations of awareness did it take for somebody or a group of people to decide that that was something to mark, to set in stone, if you like. Um, do, you, do, you, do you see what I mean? That you know, it's it's like oh, absolutely. how many thousands um, of years had this been a thing? I remember saying some time ago uh, in one of our podcasts, and having been at uh, Mike Parker Pearson's talk, um, that he suggested that one original reason for Stonehenge being where it was, that by serendipity, a glacial scar across the landscape had an alignment that, that where the um, Stonehenge Avenue is now was a natural formation, a glacial scar that had an alignment. Mm. So, you know, that may have something to do with it, of, you know, inverted commas, sacred nature of, of the site. Yes. Uh, and how inevitably it um, became the major <clears throat> megalithic monument with a uh, proven astronomical uh, alignment. That may be, the, may be the reason it was there in the first place. Yeah. And interestingly enough, of course, that predating uh, Stonehenge, even as we know it in terms of the bank and the ditch, uh, that as far back in time as Stonehenge, the Sarsons are to us now, as far back in time before that again, there were the uh, timber post holes, the timber posts, <laughs> um, which were in this place where the car park used to be. Yes. There was a timber post monument yes. uh, in the Mesolithic. Yes. So what was and, that doing there? Uh, well, uh, and, and I think that that is a very good uh, point to make, that in order to have put up any stone site that must have been generations of wooden posts being uh, refined and refined and refined until it was accepted that they were absolutely correct, if you like, mm -hmm. before they were then constructed <clears throat> permanently in stone. 
Um, yeah. And uh, yes, post holes. You know, I. It's another of the glories of modern technology that the the more we can do geophys on. Uh, on any number of sites and find <laughs> that there were post holes here and here. Post and here holes, and here. yes. <laughs> because it, it just holes, it yes. gives you so much information. And yeah. and it's something that, that, you know, it's invisible. So uh, mm. uh, I, I think that it gives you a, a much greater sense of, of the passage of time and how our ancestors yeah. were actually constructing things really rigorously. You know, making sure that they'd got yeah. it right before they started hauling vast tonnage into place. <laughs> I think the, the the part of the, part of the answer to your question about um, you know at what point is a decision made to create such a monument to make such an alignment um, inside of the answer to that is I've heard it so often. Um, that it's claimed that Stonehenge or uh, an other um, ancient monument is an observatory. <laughs> and I think that is a mis mistake. Um, yeah, for I agree. Whatever the purpose of putting uh, a, a monument there and aligning it in such a way is not a way of finding something new out. An observatory is for display making new discoveries mm. for observing for, for 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 furthering your understanding yeah um my feeling is that most definitely these monuments were about establishing and firming up a world view yes to you know plant in the ground this is what we know yeah. not to make something new not to make a new discovery mm. but to say this is who we are this is our relationship to the Earth, the sky, our ancestors, the sun, the moon, mm. uh, the, the dead, and the seasons. Yeah, I, I, I do so agree. I think that uh, that essentially, you know, we we can uh, we can never avoid the fact. Not that we want to avoid it. We we have to acknowledge the fact that uh, that this would have been uh, bordering on religious. Although we can't ever say it was religious mm. per se, but. Um, but the thing is that there was no frame of reference for, you know, for our current scientific view of, of the cosmos. That did not exist. And so for our ancestors to mark the passage of the heavens, um, it, it's a completely different mindset that, as you say, you know, they're making sense of whether, whether it's being reverential or not, mm. we, we, you know, we can't say. Uh, you know, I know that there is. Uh, you know, we have a tendency to attribute attribute everything to spiritual um, beliefs and what have you. Well, you know, we don't know that. We can guess that, but we don't know that. Um, but they're still marking what they can see. They're making sense of the universe uh, with this. And and I, you know, I say universe from our perspective, not theirs. Uh, yeah. That uh, you know that they're making sense of the heavens. And uh, and so, as you say, you know, and it's a very good point that uh, that calling it an observatory <laughs> is mm. is a, 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 is a bit of a leap. Um, yeah, it's the it's an as above, so below thing. I think is it yeah. fair to say that? Uh, yes, ab absolutely. Mm. Um, I, I, I think you know it's about encapsulating a worldview. And also about power, I think, to a certain extent. The more firmly you can establish your direct relationship to uh, 
<clears throat> the cosmos, mm. you know, nature uh, itself, and put yeah. yourself at that the, that pinnacle, at that interface. That's a very very powerful thing. Yes, and in actual fact, that's that's a very good point, probably, to to talk about. Uh, things like you know the light box at Newgrange or the clava cans or you know if, yeah. if you if you could at winter solstice if you could capture the sun's light and if you like mm-hmm. drive it into a chamber in the depths of a uh, of a uh, of a passage tomb or what have you that that would be an incredibly powerful thing to have done but also uh, in terms of reaffirming not only the relationship of the person buried there, mm. but also of establishing the relationship of the whole community to nature mm. uh, or to whatever the <clears throat> whatever whatever that worldview encompassed. Oh, I mean, it's an interesting thing talking about uh, Newgrange because, of course, it is a, um, a, a one-off. It is referred to as one of the proving sites of uh, the fact of um, astrono- astronomical alignments. But actually establishing that a site uh, does have an astronomical alignment is uh, fraught with difficulties. <laughs> Not this establishing, you know, that a particular something points at a particular point on the horizon because mm. anything points at anything. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. you know, it, it's establishing, well, that stone aligns with that stone and that's where the sun rises on this particular date. Is mm. that coincidence or not? Mm. Do you know what? I, I think that it's a very good point, and uh, and I think the only example that I can think of where we haven't really been able to make much sense of it, but nevertheless you know that there is sense to be made, is Kalanish. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's yeah. because... Well, that's another one-off, you know, because it is so precise. But carry on, carry on. Yeah, well, no, I was only going to say, because I'm not talking about the way the um, it relates to uh, the moon rolling across the landscape. I was actually thinking more about the way some of those stones have been cut into angles. Uh, So you you get a little box shape here, and and it lines up with a box shape on a stone on the other side of the site. So you know that they did that deliberately, because there's no way it can have been an accident. And, And so all you can say is, well, you know that it does line up with something, but you haven't yet been able to find (laughs) out what. what. Um, Uh, And of course, the problem there is going back to what you were saying uh, earlier on, that when you have a movement of uh, you know of the stars uh, because of the procession uh, over uh, however many oh, thousand yeah. years, yeah. that to actually look at that notch lining up with that notch, well, okay, but pick a time. You know, yeah. what, what, you know, exactly. are you are you looking at two o'clock in, in the trouble. morning on <clears throat> you know at this time of year? Yeah, five thousand. That, that, that is a particular or, problem to the stars because yeah. they move a great deal more than uh, in relationship. It's, it's very very hard to make sense of of that. But uh, but, but, the, but we do have statistics on our side. That, that's the thing. <laughs> oh, in yes, certain circumstances, I, I'm just going going to because the the uh, apparently Drombeg. Did yes. we go to Drombeg in Standing with Stones? That does have an alignment, apparently. 
um, on the midwinter sunset. Um, but it's one of quite a few similar mon monuments uh, in and around County Cork, but no other monument in the group is is aligned. Yeah. So, you know, of all those, what are they, 50 or so, uh, uh, there are yes. of them. So on that basis, you have to dismiss the alignment of Drombeg yes. as an accident, as as a ser serendipity. Almost. Uh, I, I Almost. Can't, I can't... Um, and the only reason I say that is that if, if for example... You know, you had, you know, thirty different people at different periods, or not really different periods, but you know, different groups. You know, if everybody had to build a site in, you know, you know, pick thirty towns or fifty towns in Britain, you know, and you yeah. said that everybody had to build this, and it was the responsibility of the mayor of the town <laughs> to to decide how that was going to be done or where it was going to be done. Well, if one person said, do you know what? I know we'll make it the same, but let's just point it this way because then it does this. So it, it might not have been an accident, but it does make but, it a one-off. And Well, absolutely. But that's unknowable. Completely. That's, that, that's, that's, yes. that's the thing. And so, you know, the, the statistics helps us to get to something that is at least n knowable. Yes. Know? For example, I mean, yes, we dismiss maybe uh, Drombeg on the, that basis, but on the basis that um, uh, Long Barrows, for instance, predating um, the uh, Sarsons at uh, Stonehenge, if the Long Barrows all point south, um, in between uh, the rising and the setting of the sun, we know that's deliberate. Yes. And the same thing goes up uh, in um, Portugal with the um, um, the seven stone... Um, oh, the Antas. The Antas, yes. The seven stone Antas. Uh, and of the, the, the 177 of them there are that have been analysed for their direction in every single one. Mm. Uh, aligns to some point between the rising and the setting of the sun. Yes. You know, that's it. Bingo. Yes. You, you, you've got it. You know that the sun was important to the building of those um, monuments. Yes. Uh, and, so, and you can it, go so far as to perhaps say that, um, that, that uh, on the day that that monument w was built, the sun rose in that particular direction. Perhaps, who knows? Yeah. You know, but it, but it's an it's interesting one, isn't it? Because, you see, I, I know I get boring on this, but I have the same sort of feeling of, you know, that in Christian churches, that the fact that they're, yeah. they're aligned east-west, and that's something that uh, it, it's, a, it's a cultural norm. So all churches uh, were aligned east-west. There is no mention of that in Christian Scripture, as far as I'm aware, there is none. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly no priest I've ever spoken to has been able to uh, reference anything. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. uh, so you have this thing that is an accepted way of, uh, of building your holy monument, yeah. um, but there's no reference to it within your faith. So could, you know, does the same thing apply to these dolmens, that it was an accepted way of constructing them, 
but you know, but were they, you know, were they all referenced, or do you know what I mean? Um, These are the kinds of questions that have to be um, asked, mm. not necessarily with ex expectation of an answer. But <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we do we no. do have to keep them in the in the in the backs of our minds. I mean, mm. uh, you know what I. I um, I came up with a with a couple of things along this line, you know, of, of working out whether things were deliberate or not. Mm. And um, for instance, what are future archaeologists to make of the fact that um, Midsummer Boulevard in Milton Keynes, yeah. which is one of the main boulevards, you know, going down through through, through the town, is perfectly mm. aligned on sunrise uh, at summer solstice? Absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Yes, and did you know that um, uh, Brunel's um, tunnel, box tunnel, which is near Bath, yes, the rising sun shines down uh, box tunnel on Brunel's birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. That's do you know what the man was a genius. Well, yeah, but there, there maybe we a go. teensy, teensy bit egocentric, but. <laughs> 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 uh, but Mr. Brunel, the train needs to arrive. <laughs> wow. So, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, wow. Well, well, yeah. Yeah. I wonder how long uh, it took to plan that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So Stonehenge is, you know, obviously established as as uh, having its alignments and being purposely built to align with mm. the solstice. Oh, by the way, did you know that there are concentrations of offerings in the Aubrey holes um, at the most southerly and northerly moonrise positions? I didn't know that either. That's, that's mm -hmm. quite, mm -hmm. quite, quite. It's amazing what you find out when you start looking around. Yeah. Um, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. The, the, the solar alignments at Stonehenge are well established. The lunar alignments are uh, less well, but there are tantalising suggestions along those lines. What other, apart from Newgrange, uh, Stonehenge, Kalanish, obviously, yeah. where, what's, tell me about, tell us about the, what particularly goes on at Kalanish that makes it special with regards to the moon? Oh, well, I, I mean, I suppose the, the, the principal thing is that Kalanish is, is constructed around the full lunar cycle, 18.6 years, that, yeah. um, that the, the – now, what do they call the, uh, the – <laughs> The landscape, so the the hills behind Kalanish, in the distance behind yeah. Kalanish, uh, it it appears to be a reclining woman, and they call oh, her. That she that has a name. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I can't help you there. No, senior moment. Anyway, it's a reclining woman, and at the um, at the lunar, uh, the extremes of the lunar cycle, the moon appears the, uh, to. Roll the major standstill. The, if you're looking for the technical term, I think the major standstill. The major standstill. I'm sure it could have a much more romantic <clears throat> name than that. But the moon appears to roll along her body, and uh, and it appears and disappears behind the stones. And yeah. at the end of the sequence, it, it appears to set. It's an optical illusion, but it appears to set within the site itself. And 
I, I, for any of you that know Cavendish, we can put some photographs up uh, mm-hmm. on the site if you if you don't know yeah. it. In order to observe this, you have to be standing in the avenue. Yes. Yes, in, in but in, in fact, you know, if you go on to uh, go on to YouTube and just Google, oh yeah, sure, uh, Luna Maximum at Calendish, or even have and, a look at uh, Standing with Stones at the Calendish. Or even have a look. In fact, do you know what? I will say that uh, a certain Michael Bott did a <laughs> glorious um, and very accurate using astronomical software uh, to make a very accurate. Uh, passage of the moon through the site but at a speed that makes it um you know you can really appreciate what's happening when you see it mm. uh, happening you know fairly quickly if you go mm. on to um youtube you can see there are people who have filmed this and the thing is that obviously you know a night time of viewing of watching the moon go across the landscape it takes hours which mm. um <clears throat> You know, for the, and it's one of our cultural problems now is that we want everything now. We are so impatient. You know, if if you've got a YouTube video that lasts more than two minutes, we start twitching and you know what have you. We want everything yeah. quick. Um, whereas you know, back then, I'm sure our ancestors would have watched the moon roll across a landscape for hours and hours and hours and been quite yeah. transfixed. And we we just don't have the oh, patience absolutely. anymore. Do you know what? No. If you catch it, if you catch it in a in a, a a good place with a good horizon, watching the moon rise out of it or sink into it is mm-hmm. quite mesmerising. Quite mesmerising. So I, watching it skim along the surface must be something else indeed. Even if you do have to wait eighteen point six years. Yes, uh, I must admit for, for it I, for it to be a cloudy night. I am I am blessed that I currently live in a dark sky area and yes. I revel in watching the moon rise when it mm. does um it's uh, I, you know I can quite see how it must have been incredibly magical to yeah. our ancestors and you know I mean stepping Beyond Kalanish, you know, you look at the recumbent stone circles. Well, I was going to say, talking um, about the moon, let's talk about the recumbents. Yes. Yeah, so up in Aberdeenshire. And uh, to watch the moon roll across an altar stone that you've placed there. Um, mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, that must have been extraordinary. Although I have to say, and I'm going to toss this in with only partial tongue in cheek, because I think it was a glorious uh, idea, and this is one of Mike's <laughs> ideas when we were doing stones. We see stone circles in their raw form. We have no knowledge today. We have no understanding of how those structures may actually have appeared. They might have had wooden walls. They might have been enclosed. They, we just don't know. And, uh, and so we, you, there's the recumbent stone circles up there where at the, uh, at the lunar maximum, uh, the moon appears to roll across the altar stone. And, and Mike had this wonderful idea that, well, I imagine, though, that that's an internal building. And actually yeah. the altar is, is a big window, and you're looking out and it's almost like a cinema screen. And so you're all sitting indoors and suddenly the moon appears. And you're, it's That's like right. you're indoors yeah. watching a movie. And you can That's sit right. indoors and watch the moon roll across the uh, the altar stone and then it's gone. 
magic. Neolithic IMAX, mate. (laughs) Absolutely. And actually, I love that idea. I love that idea. I think it's, uh, you know, and there is, uh, (laughs) it's utterly plausible. That's the thing. Don't know if it's got that many legs, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) It's got as many as any other. Tantalizingly, um, Diodorus of Sicily. Diodorus of Sicily. Diodorus, the Greek historian. Yes. Uh, in the first century BC, mentions a northern island dedicated to Apollo, who returned every nineteen years and skimmed the earth at a very low height. Did he? He did. Now most people took that as a reference to Stonehenge, but that fits Kalanish much, much better. Yeah. But he actually did say that. He mentioned that. That's uh, golly, that's golly, a- gosh! That's actually remarkable. I never knew that at all. Mm. Um, no, neither did I until I started doing a bit of homework. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing where this work takes you. Wow. I tell you. Okay. The important thing to understand about uh, uh, you know that this only happens up there is that it's only at those latitudes that the moon mm. does behave in this way in regards to the uh, the horizon. And that's the glory of the latitude that it, it's very very specific. If you go further north, the moon isn't visible, and if yeah. you go further south, it never skirts the horizon. So it, yeah. it's only up at that latitude that you have the phenomenon of yeah. uh, uh, of the moon appearing to roll across the landscape. And while we're at these latitudes, what about the Clava Cairns? Well, yeah, so same thing. I lower. mean, it, that's an interesting... I, I, I never really got my head around the Clava Cairns. You know, well, well these are different. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the fact that you have these relatively small... Cairns. I mean, then you know they're not huge, are they? Um, you know, what are they? Medium-sized cairns. So they're not huge, and uh, and so there's a cluster of them, and they're aligned on the uh, on the winter solstice. I was quite bewildered by you know if you go up and see these sites, they're not far from Inverness, um, and you go up and look at these. Cairns, and the thing is that in the ground, in the you know, just the vestiges of them left in the uh, in the grass, that there are these rays of stones. Oh, They're like these ridges. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That that they're clearly very, very deliberately placed mm. rows of <clears throat> cobbles. But it is so hard to get an idea of of what they related to because they they're not in a direction that relates to the angle of the sun at the solstice, which is what the cairns are constructed to oh, yeah. uh, um, uh, to work with, uh, right. and uh, and so it, yeah, it's this it's clearly very very deliberate, and yet it's as clear as mud. <laughs> Yes, um, must go back one day and have another yes. look at that. Yes. yes, what were they Moving thinking? further down the country, have we got anything to say about Thornborough Henges? Oh, well, I, I, I wish I did. I, there, there, is, there is theory that it echoes Orion. Well, that is um, the that is what I um, you know have have heard that the uh, the shape on, on the ground, the three mm. on the ground 
echo uh, Orion's belt. Mm. Um, well, of course, there's, there is um, uh, there is compelling evidence to suggest that that Thornborough was a, a if you like a trial run for the Giza Plateau. The alignments of Thornborough oh. and with the <clears throat> Great Pyramids are absolutely spot on the same. And uh, it's, I have to say, it is quite compelling if you look at the evidence for that. Um, and uh, that's and a, you, yeah, that that's a toughie. That is a that's um, a tough. It, one. It's an it's alarmingly tough one. But um, but the reason I don't dismiss the notion is because I'm uh, I can't help but be quietly excited by the old myths. You know, there's there's for yeah. example, there's the the old myth uh, that Callanish was built by black men who came from across the sea. Yeah. Now, I love that. Now, of course, we also we mustn't uh, avoid the fact that uh, that in uh, in some cultural terminologies, calling uh, or referring to people as black men, sometimes it's simply referred to hair color. So, uh, so it didn't necessarily mean that these were, uh, say, Africans who mm. who came uh, to build the site, but it could, and and so to have the suggestion that you know that that, that there really is a reason for acknowledging the correlation, the fact that uh, mm. that Thornborough. Uh, in the way it's constructed, Thornborough does mirror Giza, and then you have these myths of black men from over the sea, and you think, well, okay, maybe. Completely unprovable, but maybe. Do you know what, Rupert? We missed a trick. When we're talking about trade, yes, Neolithic trade, yes. didn't mention the uh, trade in ideas, didn't mention exchange of ideas over distance. Do you know what? We didn't. Mm. No. And that's um... tantalizing. Now, interestingly about um, um, Thornborough, though, um, mm. more than the fact that the shape on the ground echoes um, the shape of uh, Orion's belt in the sky, mm. um, apparently, and I, I, I know no more than what's in front of my eyes here is a bit of my homework, is that, the, that there are structural alignments in the hinges upon the stars of Orion's belt. So it doesn't echo the shape, but it's aligned too and follows the shift in the rising position over several centuries of Orion's belt itself, suggesting um, that uh, there was something to do with uh, the henge that, that, that triggered celebration or gathering at particular times of year. Ha ha. The wonders of all of this stuff is that we find that every time we open our mouths, we create another question. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. So here's another question then. So let's prize ourselves away from, from, from that and bring ourselves further south. And uh, what about the particularly the Cornish stone circles with their tendency to 19 mm. stones? Or what about the phenomenon of nine stone circles? What's that yes. about? 
Well, again, lunar cycle, isn't it? That uh, if you well, take, that's what we um, say, what we leap to. But um, you know, but, I, but I, I think it must be though. Uh, but that we need to be open to the possibility that, in the same way that you know, going back to Christian churches being built east west, that it has no bearing on the faith. It's just something that is done. So maybe you know, if you take, so you've got the full lunar cycle that's eighteen point six years. Well, if you're going to be accurate, putting a 19-stone circle uh, up, well, that's as close as you can get to 18.6 years. So you put 19 stones in a circle. Um, uh, But if you're going to do the the budget version of that, (laughs) then nine stones is as – is the – you know – Okay, you well, could do yeah, a ten yes. stone circle, but a ten stone circle is not going to be as accurate as a nine stone circle. Oh no, I think it is um, because we're not talking about because the the eighteen point seven is the whole cycle. Yes, um, <clears throat> um, but the that cycle divides in half between the uh, major standstill and the minor standstill, yes. so nine is still significant. There's the phases of the moon, and there's the, there's a period between the extreme setting and rising of the moon, which is 27 days. But the 18.6 cycle is is between the two widest risings and settings, and the 9.3 cycle is between the narrowest rising and setting and the widest narrowing and setting. See, it then makes you wonder if you're going to uh, make that distinction, which is a rather beautiful thing to do. Um, But if you're going to make that distinction, then the inference is that the nine stone circle isn't the budget version of the 19 stone circle. It's the minimum uh, versus the maximum. Yeah. See, in my head, though, I mean, I think, I think, <clears throat> I think we've said enough about that to, uh, for dear listener, to have a, at least a notion of what we're trying to say. But the further complication, or the problem that I have in my mind with using rather large stones to mark this thing, is that the difference between the widening and narrowing of the rising and setting points is quite small. It needs precise observation. Yeah, well, you see, I, I have a thing here. I, I'm quietly convinced. No, I'm not convinced. That's not the word. Um, but I, I have it's a... Quietly confident, listeners. Quite, quietly confident. I'm quietly confident that we're looking at, you know, whenever we look at stone circles, we see what's left we don't see yeah, yeah. the full monument. We don't see the full construction. And I have a suspicion that within the stones, there was a movable wooden structure. And I think that it was the movable wooden structure that refined the gap because that was movable. So you've set, if you like, you've set the stones so it's not the stones themselves it's the gaps between the stones that uh, that is relevant and uh, and within that you can have a movable set of wooden you know whether it's there's a you know maybe there's a slot in your wooden posts that you mm. put up 
uh, that that can refine the gap. Um, it's it's just you know I, uh, <laughs> yes, I, I'm. I I, I'm I'm not so sure myself because I think we're still into an observational problem to do with a circle, and you know uh, wherever you may position yourself to make an observation uh, in mm. a circle, you know that is precise enough to um, mark, should we say, if not observe, to mark um, the differential between the major and minor standstill. It's such a a, a small thing. That making, mm-hmm. however, um, nine sto- I'm perfectly willing to accept that uh, nine stones or nineteen stones um, could be used to as a mnemonic for you know to remember where you are in the cycle once you've got yeah. your starting point, uh, you know, and and to look at it that way. Um, but as but for observing and refining that observation, or even you know, uh, I I doubt it. I don't know. I'm a bit sceptical you know about that. that. Um, the thing that I, uh, I I just fall down on, though, is why does it matter? Yeah. You know, why, why, apart from the fact that to have observed that it took 18.6 years to make a difference, because you would only notice it if you were up at the northern latitudes. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't notice it further south. Oh, it right, just, yeah. It, it really does get, um, yeah. Yeah, so so down in Cornwall, for example, it, 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 it I can't imagine that being something that that would have originated down there because it wouldn't have made any odds. It would have to have been something that was culturally imported, um, and 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 so it is back to that thing. Well, so what? Um, and and I can you know obviously from a from the point of view of modern astronomy. Because we like to understand every nuance of how the universe works, well, it makes sense to know why. But back then, you know, what what difference does it make to you? Why do you want to mark the fact that the moon is ever so slightly different now? Why? Unless it's that thing of, you know, is it the spiritual side of things where you're relating to the moon in a... Uh, in almost a personal way. Um, you know, it goes, it yes, a- I think that's absolutely it. I think you're going back to the fact that uh, our ancient ancestors is a completely different relationship to the night sky to, mm. than we could pos- almost possibly conceive because it was there. It was in their faces. The, yes, mm. it may have got darker at, at night. The sun went down, but boy, did the sky light up again, you know, mm. with such a fantastic mm. spectacle. It, it, it had to be, you know, in their souls, in their bones, this mm. cycle, this re- repetition, uh, you know, cycle of life and cycle of seasons and death and renewal and the sun coming up and the moon coming up and going down. It, it, there was, it was so much more part of their lives than it, 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 it can ever be for Marking us. the positions of the moon during a monthly cycle, for example. Fair enough. But marking the nuances of the moon over 19 years. Mm. So mm. what? 
how did how does that affect your life? Now, obviously, it did. It was important to them because they did it. That's but right. What, what was you, it? You have to have a story about it. You have yes. to have a story about it that you either want to confirm uh, uh, and 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 show that you ha can confirm and therefore can establish a relationship and therefore show yourself to have power. Mm. And I was going to say, or something else, but that's about it, really. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but you're so right. It's the stories yeah. that we tell and the stories that bring communities together, yes. you know, that shared story. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. it doesn't matter, you know, whether that's faith-related or, the more you, or, or the more that you, related well. The more that you can prove you as a person are related to that domain of, of knowing mm. that story, of being integrated with that story, the more importance you can have in your community, I think. Mm, mm. It may, you know, maybe a little bit of a power struggle thing going on. Yeah. Who knew the most, who could establish themselves as closest to nature in knowing, um, could, um, you know, could have the most power. Yes. Well, certainly, you know, can you imagine mm. if, if you were sufficiently knowledgeable that you could predict eclipses and I honestly can't pretend to know uh, how early our understanding of eclipses actually. Uh, Fred uh, Hoyle put it up once upon a time that they, the Aubrey holes at Stonehenge were predictors of the eclipse. That has mm. been poo-poo. That has been uh, uh, debunked since. It hasn't time. convinced me. I'd like it to be true, but mm. I, 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 I don't know if it is. But, yeah. but can you imagine? The, the power you would appear to have if you could predict an eclipse. Oh, absolutely. I think that, so we're getting to the nub of it, you know, that, that it's that kind of thing that has to be the power behind the driver to um, get these things constructed in the first place. Mm. Yeah. And actually mentioning Fred Hoyle, we kind of come a little bit uh, full cycle though, because um, although that, theory has been debunked and shown to be uh, not true, i.e. that the Aubrey holes as predictors of the, of the eclipse. Um, this uh, theory came out round about the time, I can't remember, 60s, 70s, but this was the whole raison d'etre for the existence of archaeoastronomy in the first place, is uh, Fred Hoyle, uh, a well-known uh, physicist and astronomer, comes in and uh, stamps his feet all over the area of where previously the archaeologist had only had sway. So, and this was happening with Professor Tom up in Scotland as well, um, uh, coming in and making these assertions about the astronomy and astronomical alignments of stones mm. uh, up in Scotland. And... Um, uh, because it involved maths and statistics, which archaeologists were not uh, used <laughs> to doing, in, you know, as yeah. trowels and um, uh, and the rest of it. So um, archaeologists found their noses put out somewhat, and there was quite a lot of friction um, between uh, the astronomers uh, coming in and making assertions about ancient monuments and uh, yeah. the archaeologists. And archaeoastronomy sort of 
was created as a science to fit in between the two. And so the, the two could have a proper dialogue and come to um, some kind of uh, uh, resolution about uh, uh, once you established that um, uh, astronomical alignments are there, then how far you can go in interpreting them and to create a balance yeah. between the two. It's an extraordinary thing with archaeology, just how much, in fact, more than any other science, really, that it's an interpretive science. Mm. Um, and I think one of the glories of the modern technology that it's becoming increasingly a measurable uh, discipline. But but historically, certainly, it was it was interpretive, and so that left so much room for mm. argument. Yes. <laughs> Do you know? Early on in this podcast, um, I uh, dared to make a, make a prediction uh, that uh, this would be um, a longer than usual podcast. Shall I say? Uh, maybe even you a, did. You know, uh, a ninety minute or a one hour special. Well, you did. It is. <laughs> And here we are. If you haven't noticed already. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and here we are. And, um, <laughs> well, we knew there was quite a lot of covered ground to cover, and um, I'm sure that we haven't even really begun to scratch the surface of this uh, fascinating well, no, we haven't, aspect of our ancient monuments. But at the same point, there comes a point uh, where, at the same time, there comes a point where we must draw a line, I fear. Is there anything do you, know what? Do you think do you know we've what? left we, untouched? Uh, well, I think, well, yes. I think you saying we must draw a line. How about we draw a row? Ah, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we just Let's go back to Dartmoor, shall we? And just tail this off, yeah, with, yeah. Uh, with stone rows that, uh, that over the years, you know, a lot of people have said that this stone row aligns with whatever. And the thing is, it's a line. You know, leave it alone. Because it's always going to align with something. Just yeah. pick your time and pick your place. Um, so I, I think you, you, you can just dismiss the notion of uh, stone rows as being uh, astronomical. I think, you know, okay, there may be one or two that do just for no real good reason, you know, a bit like you saying the, mm. uh, you know, the isolated fact that Drumbeg lines with, the other fifty uh, years, you know, uh, and I think it's the same thing that the stone rows, I, I think they were entirely internal, you know, they related to everything that was going on within the community. It was not to do with, uh, with what was happening celestially. Mm. Uh, I think that's the only thing that we hadn't really mentioned. Mm. Uh, you know, if we were going to get into nuances, then we could, uh, you know, we could actually probably do a week special. <laughs> well, um, going into details of some of the alignments that have been picked out in different places. Um, I think that, you know, what we're left with really is the fact that our ancestors had a relationship with the heavens that we've just lost completely. Mm. Um, and in many ways, you know, we can be, um, you know, almost pompous in our modern scientific understanding. But I think that we, um, that we should never forget the, the romance and magic mm. of relating to, 
things in nature that you don't fully understand. You try to make sense of things and they do seem to be magical. Mm. So how the skies must have appeared to our ancestors must have been really quite wonderful. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, science uh, helps us have a personal relationship now to um, what we perceive as our, our universe. Uh, our understanding, you know, helps enrich our, uh, our lives in that way. And um, the closer you can align yourself with an understanding of whatever is going on in your world story must in, have enhanced the personal it's a personal relationship mm. that we're always seeking with the, the world about us. And I think yes. uh, in that respect, we are no different. Um, it's mm. just that we have a completely different story, a different sky mm. uh, uh, yeah. and, and, and relationship uh, to it. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> Shall we move on? Yeah, let's do that. Flipping egg. I, <laughs> did you know you knew anything about archaeoastronomy before we started that, Rupert? I don't know nothing, mate. I don't know nothing. No. Um, I, I did do some homework, but I'm absolutely amazed that we got, uh, got two words out. Um, Whether it makes any sense or not. Only time will tell, and our dear listeners, I guess. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, uh, well, anyway, this brings us um, nicely. I well, nicely it brings us timely, in timely fashion, perhaps to question time. I suppose it does. I suppose it does. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. You've left me all pondering about stars now. Well, no, coming back in the room. Back. Okay, in the back room, in the room. Back. And we're back, back in the room. Back in the room. Yes. <sighs> and he's there. <laughs> Rupert, do we have a question this month? Uh, actually, yes. We had a rather nice question from Jane Burroughs in Cumbria. Uh, and uh, this is just going on from where we were last month. Really, she says, uh, last month we were talking about trade in the Neolithic and Bronze Age. What is the greatest distance we know of for trade in prehistory? <laughs> what, trade in the, Thank the you, whole of prehistory? That's what Not she just says. The Neolithic. Oh no, she doesn't say Neolithic. Pleasure. She says in prehistory. Well, she probably means probably bearing in mind that um, she says we were talking about trade in the Neolithic and Bronze Age. She probably means Neolithic and Bronze Age. That is our remit, after all. Yes, even so, it sounds like an entire new podcast to me. <laughs> Have we got <laughs> well, another night? Could, Have we got another? As soon as you talk about trade in prehistory, uh, it'll be a podcast. Talk about isn't it? Trade in prehistory. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, um, I don't know. Nothing springs to my mind. Uh, um, well, uh, except what Silk Road, but that Silk Road's far too recent, isn't it? So, it, Hang, is it Han Dynasty? It, 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 the Silk Road did know. start with the Han Dynasty. Well, except that that that's the the Han Dynasty opened up the trade route, but mm. we do know that those routes were. You know, I mean, they were active internally for a long, long time before. Um, and what do you mean? What do you mean internally? I mean, I mean, well, because the Silk Road really was when um, all that trade started. I mean, basically, the tr the Silk Road ends in Italy, 
So it comes all the way from China across to Italy. Oh, wow, of course, Marco Polo, all that. Exactly. And yeah, all yeah, that. gee. Um, <clears throat> and, and so within China um, and, uh, and probably Mongolia, where does it skirt? Because there's actually, uh, yeah. there are avenues that break off the Silk Road uh, uh, a Rupert, lot. I thought uh, I was asking a simple question. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now the Silk, the Silk Road could be another <laughs> podcast, couldn't it? That's true. Okay. Um, yes. Uh, the thing is that uh, we know that there was an awful lot of stuff going on in the Far East many thousands of years ago, and yeah. uh, uh, and so it's like anything else. That the Silk Road that we know of now. Uh, there was just an extension of that. It's like any of the sites that we go to now that we've said yeah. many times before that the uh, the road going through the uh, the stone circle. Well, you know, it used to be a footpath. It's just it's yeah. no different where people still go. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> but actual trade. I mean, uh, you know, more specifically to Jane's question, actual trade. I think you know we were saying last month about the axe trade and and certainly we know about the uh, the Italian Alps the axes the jadeite axes from the Italian Alps that's well, quite a all, long way all roads lead to Italy then <laughs> that is quite a long way actually do you know what you saying all road all roads lead to Italy well here's another one here's another one and this is uh this is for me, it's a lovely example. Well, that's right. Well, hold on a minute. All roads well, lead to Rome. I mean... <laughs> well, yeah. It, yeah, actually, almost. Um, because one of the things that that brings to mind is, uh, you know, one of my soapbox things for... <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes. Listeners, I'm sorry, all right? I might, I might go off on one. The thing is that... Uh, one of the wonderful things that's happened... Jane Burroughs, you didn't know what you were doing when you asked this question. <laughs> one of the wonderful on, things Rupert, that is on. happening because of modern technology is that an awful lot of the things that were dismissed by academia as being nonsense or fanciful or what have you, that uh, technology, because we can actually, you know, chemically analyse stuff, it, it's proving things that were um, that were often conjecture. And mm -hmm. one of the really interesting things, and what made me think of it when you said all roads lead to Italy, <laughs> and uh, and therefore by extension Rome. Is uh, let's not Rome, but Pompeii. Oh. Right, now, one oh. of the um, one of the things about Pompeii that has always been an anomaly is that there are mosaics at Pompeii that show pineapples, yeah. and pineapples only come from South America. Um, and of course, academia said this is nonsense, and you know they were always dismissed. In fact, one of the most irritating things was I read uh, one particular um, article about these uh, these mosaics that said that what the explanation of this was that the artists who were perfectly good at uh, at illustrating anything else. But their uh, their view on the pineapples was that no, they were just trying to illustrate pine cones, but they thought they should put leaves on them to make them look prettier. 
That's a bit, um, um, <clears throat> that's that's a just, bit contorted, isn't it? Oh, it's just clutching at straws. And it, it's the irritating thing of when people try to explain things away rather than explain them. Mm. And um, so that was that was one uh, thing that, you know, there's a distinct connection there. Unless somebody can come up with another explanation, there's a connection with South America. And that bounces me on to another of the anomalies in uh, not uh, Italy this time, but in Egypt was uh, there's a, um, a, a woman, I wonder if she's still with us. This is back in <coughs> 1992, I think. Uh, a Russian uh, scientist, I can't remember what her exact discipline is, but her name was, um, her name is Svetla Balamanova. And she was asked to do chemical analysis, a kind of chemical autopsy, if you like, of some Egyptian mummies. And uh, and it was just curiosity. They wanted to find out, you know, health-wise and, you know, just the sort of things that you'd try to find out. She found, though, when she did the analysis uh, of the um, tissues, she found traces of tobacco and cocaine, ah, both of okay. which are plants that are indigenous to South America. And, of course, Don't belong when in Egypt. she... No, exactly. Now, when she first came out with these results, uh, the 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 first accusations were contamination that the, these traces must have been either you know there were people smoking in the lab or even cocaine. You know, there was mm-hmm. uh, somebody <laughs> so a user who was something to do with the tests. Mm. So she redid the tests, and the results came back the same. And so again, people were saying that this had to be contamination. So for the third set of tests, what she did was test hair follicles and hair shafts. And the the thing about particularly hair shafts is that uh, if you find those traces in the shaft of hair, it means that the chemicals had to be uh, consumed, if you like, Mm -hmm. while that person was alive because hair, you know, once it's actually grown out, the hair in itself is is inert, it's dead. And, And so the results came back the same, which proved categorically that the cocaine and tobacco had been... Uh, taken into the body during life. Now, there again, you know, unless somebody is going to say that uh, that cocaine or um, or the coca plant, if you like, uh, was actually found elsewhere, has since become extinct, and the only place we've uh, yeah. we now know of it is yeah. uh, is in South America. It's not totally beyond the realms of possibility, although you'd think that we would have found traces of it before now. Um, but the, the, you know the point is that there again, that is a very distinct connection with the Americas. Um, you know, okay, maybe there is another explanation, but the thing is that you can't avoid the fact that sometimes the clearest answer is very often the correct one. Yes, um, and it, exactly, and it doesn't seem. Uh, you know, one of the other things about. Uh, trade was that it, you know for years in fact even now still it still goes on today that academic archaeologists particularly 
tend to cling to the uh, the line that uh, that man didn't cross the Atlantic in prehistory. Now, there's a wealth of evidence to to show that man did, and certainly if you go back to the last ice age, the uh, uh, you know the maximum, you, you could follow the ice sheet, which is what Inuit do. Uh, you know, even now, you follow an ice yeah. sheet. It's it's land. So if you can skirt an ice sheet, fishing as you go and camping out on the ice at night, uh, then you would just be going across a landmass to get to the Americas. It, it, mm. it wouldn't be crossing the Atlantic. So mm. it's you know, there's there is a lot of aspects to global travel that are dismissed because we see them with modern eyes instead of how the world must have looked a long time ago. And then I could bang on for hours, you know. You know that the Polynesians used to lash very big canoes together and they could travel hundreds of people in uh, in these canoes that were lashed together. And and we know that they travelled thousands of miles. Well, if you can do that in canoes, I think the longest record that we know of historically is that they um, did 2,000-mile journeys. Well, if you could do 2,000, you can do 4,000 or 5,000. You know, you just – it's silly to say that it's not possible. Yeah, uh, silly to say that it's not possible. Uh, we can't put a, a number on what is the absolute longest trade route that is established and known, but these are absolutely tantalising mm. bits of evidence that suggest mm. – that trade, well, call them roots, inverted commas, were much longer, much, much longer than yeah. we would have thought possible. Yeah, Indeed. Do you know um, what? I, I will, I'll, I'll shut up, uh, but uh, it's just a, an interesting thought, though, to tag on to that is uh, it oh makes you God. wonder if trade, if, trade, <laughs> if trade did happen with South America, then did it come, you know, did you have – a, a tradesperson, if you like, who brought his goods from South America oh, to Egypt, yeah. or yes. did it travel hand to hand to hand to hand to hand across the thousands of miles? You know, I mean, that's yes, something that yes. we... Jane wanted an answer, not more questions, Rupert. I'm sorry, Jane. It's always more questions. That's just, the, that's just the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> um, of course, there was axe trade overseas. Um, yeah. Evidence for that, uh, I believe, in the Middle East, there were also axe fag- factories um, that traded that, well, axes yeah. made of obsidian uh, in, over indeed. large in fact, distances. Um, in, in Israel, wasn't it Israel that there was the huge um, obsidian axe factory? I, I, um, I, to be honest, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm pretty. I can't remember what it was called, is, but I'm pretty sure it was Israel, and mm. uh, and that was a hub. So you know they were trading axes uh, a long way in all directions there. Funnily though, those axes never got to Britain, and it makes you wonder why. Yeah. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because very curious. Yeah, it is really. I could go on for hours. So could you. I know we could. Yeah, yeah, but better yeah. not. Did that uh, help, Jane? We, no. <laughs> <laughs> Jane, you still there? Jane, we tried, Jane. We Come tried. Back. <laughs> 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 yeah. No, we we need to talk about something serious now. 
Something serious. It's oh, you, Stonehead I, of the Month. It is Stonehead of the Month. It <clears throat> is Stonehead of the Month time. And I don't know. Who, yeah. who is it this month? <laughs> who is it this month, Michael? Stonehead of the Month for the month, merry month of December, uh, is uh, Mark English. Hey. <laughs> Mark English. Mark English. He is the Christmas Stonehead of the Month. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, well Tell done, us about Mark. Mark. Uh, nah. <laughs> No, that's all, that's all I know. He's Stonehead of the Month. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, no, just for being, he's been a long, 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 long time supporter of um, what we've been doing. Um, I think I bumped into Mark first on on Twitter, uh, oh, mostly right. because I was doing Standing with Stones and the fact that I was still an actor at the time, um, because Mark uh, also has treaded the boards. Um, not so much. He um, has, hasn't he? he, yeah. he ha- Yes, I don't know if he's done much theatre, but he's certainly, um, uh, you know, been in a few uh, TV things and uh, a few films, and has uh, directed s- stuff him himself. Um, uh, you know, which I could go. I tell you what, the trick is mm. to just um, uh, Google Mark uh, M A R Q English, Google yes, Mark he's English, M-A-R-Q, yeah. and his IMDb. Uh, is the first thing that comes up, um, which, if you, it, which if actually interesting. If you if you Google Michael Bot, I think you'll probably find IMDb is the first thing that comes up. If you don't know what IMDb is, is the International um, Movie Database, <clears throat> which even well, I'm on that, but it doesn't come up first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're into movies, you're in, if, if you want to be geeky about uh, who did what when. Uh, back into the mists of time as far as movies and films and TV is concerned, mm. IMDb is your place to be. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, and you, you, can, you can go there and find out what Mark has done, but he's been a great contributor to Standing With Stones, you know, into the community. Um, and he's, he's he does his own stuff up. Actually, oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, um, um, and and he's doing got his own series of um, uh, of uh, vlogging series, uh, walking the North Downs at the moment. I think if you go yeah. to find uh, Mark on YouTube, you will find that. Um, yeah, but he's always posting really lovely stuff. Yeah, his most Last recent one, one was was, uh, was Kennett, wasn't Wayland, it? He did, uh, West Kennett, wasn't it? West Kennet. I was going to say Wayne yeah. Smithy, Smithy, but that would be a lie. It <laughs> was uh, uh, West Kennet, indeed. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, um, Mark English, Stonehead of the month. Um, Congratulations, for being a jolly good Mark. Stonehead, uh, and a jolly good chap all round. Thanks for being one of the team. Yes. Oh, talking of um, Stonehead of the Month, we were talking, we were thinking about sort of slightly altering the parameters by which we made a judgment more and sort of making it more about what specifically people have posted in the Standing With Stones community. We We haven't quite thought that through, but watch this space. We may sort of encourage you to contribute a bit more. We may sort of use Stonehead as a bit of a leverage to get you folks to... Putting more stuff on the yeah. community, we, we might do like that. that. Making it making it more like a bit of a blue Peter badge. Yeah, mm, yes, good thought. Anyway, with that, onward, ever onward, ever, ever onward. Do you know what? Well done, Mark. It's now time for whimsy. Ah, uh, e, e, uh. 
Oh my God, Rupert, you okay? <laughs> what on earth was that? I'll say it wasn't me. You sure? You sure you don't need a doctor? I mean, we could stop the recording yeah. if you like. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need treatment. I need therapy on so many levels. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about this, Michael. Okay. <laughs> that, believe it or not, uh, was uh, the recreation of how it is thought Ertzi the Iceman may have sounded in life. Our favourite Iceman sounded like yes. Sid James on a bad day. <laughs> Well, we know who Sid James is. <laughs> Talk about aging. I know it's us. terrible. Um, isn't it? Look, come on. Um, so, how? No. How? Do, what's the? What's the thing here? How do they know this? Well, this sound <laughs> is obviously just the uh, vowels. Okay. Yeah. So, obviously, we don't know how uh, the poor fellow actually spoke. Um, no, what has happened is that uh, a research group at the local hospital, I don't think this is the uh, archaeologists uh, particularly that have been investigating his body, but the local hospital did a CT scan uh, of his neck and upper torso region. Um, and they've used software. They couldn't do an MRI scan because his arm is all over the place and across his across where his vocal tract is. So what they did, they did a, CR, a CT scan, then got some software to, in virtual reality, sort of unravel his arm, um, uh, sort of untwist his, his neck and expand the vocal tract back into the proportions it would have been in life, and all this in virtual reality, and then measure that vocal tract that's been unwrapped using virtual reality, and then reconstruct it in another bit of software to give you the sound we hear now. When you think of all that, you think, oh, blooming heck, actually, that's, uh, that's a pretty impressive feat. Now, whether I don't think they actually expected to you know, hear how he actually sounded but you know it's a fascinating exercise nonetheless i, have I mean i think the I fact find that utterly remarkable but how much of that if they're using software to uh basically try to figure things out i wonder how much of that is an interpretive you know how much of it is art rather than science so if they just tweaked a couple of parameters would he sound quite different because let's face yes, it the human voice is uh it, that's it's right. So you know the nuance that makes a voice sound quite different. Yes, absolutely. Things like uh, the tension mm. uh, in his vocal cords, or the or the or the soft tissues in his vocal tract, um, those would have changed it. And they're quite upfront about that. They're not saying this is how <laughs> he sounded. I'm not being funny. Yes, you are. But it, it makes you wonder. <laughs> it makes you wonder what the the team that actually did that. It makes you wonder what they sound like because I'd have listened to that and I'd have thought, no, he can't possibly have sounded like that. Let's tweak a couple of parameters to make him sound more human. But hey, who knows? <laughs> That's extraordinary. Well, we just we we just d don't know. I mean, dear um, Ertzi, I mean, you know. Can you imagine what he would think? What he would think if he knew that five thousand three hundred years later, he would still oh, be no. a topic of conversation. I think it's wonderful, really. 
Yeah. yeah. And to put it in context, of course, we've got to remember that this we, we are we are going back to our Neolithic. Although <clears throat> although Ertzi himself um belonged in the European copper or bronze age yes. sort of boundary yeah, type yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. We were still in the Stone Age in uh, Britain. We were. Um, so this is contemporary mm. stuff. <laughs> you know, this is this is the contemporary voice of Ertzi. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a remarkable thing. Do you know what that that's something that we we have got to do a podcast about that as well, really, haven't we? About how uh, what? Um, <clears throat> well, how uh, we generally, when I say we, I'm talking about uh, the British Isles. Uh, we were at least five hundred years behind, uh, you know, the development of each uh, age, if you like, whether you know going into the Bronze Age or the Iron Age. You know, it was uh, generally five hundred years or so earlier. That it happened uh, mm. in uh, in Europe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, anyway, I'm ceasing to be whimsical. I'm stopping it being remotely amusing. I think we should talk like that. See. Actually, that's not too far off, is it's it? It's not too far off. So, dear listeners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. I- Yes, obviously, you know, it sounds like it's a scientific experiment, uh, but it really, it is in the realms of whimsy, doesn't it? Because it doesn't well, really I think it's funny. anywhere, does it? You know, it, is. It, is a, it, is whimsical, <laughs> yeah. it is a whimsical experiment. Yeah. <clears throat> so, well done. Yes. Um, yeah, who was it again that did it? Do you want me to really find the name? No, go on. No, don't. Then. No, it's the... Um, <laughs> we'll put it in the page notes. No, I know, I will. Oh, I will, then. I will. Can you do it um, now? I can. It was the ENT department of Bolzano General Hospital. Well, they and that is the city where Ertzi is at the moment. Bolzano General the, Hospital. The, 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 That's fantastic. Where the museum dedicated to him yeah. is. Yeah. So there you go. Well, anyway, hey. as you say, we, we it doesn't. It seems like we will not run out of material for the podcast, <laughs> um, which uh, I'm sure will cheer you up no end, uh, dear listeners. And uh, speaking of which, I think we've just about, this this podcast has just about run its course. Podcast number nine in the month of December. The yes. last one before uh, Christmas and uh, New Year. So um, thank you. Thank you for putting up with us. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed that. It's been a long one. Um, Yes, you can you can let us know uh, on the community or uh, or via Patreon or uh, or in emails, whatever you like. Let us know if this has been an abject pain for you to listen to. We won't take offence. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. I suppose we'll look forward to seeing you in twenty nineteen. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And you, if you did enjoy this, please do consider supporting us via uh, Patreon. Yes, um, you can find us at uh, patreon.com dot com forward slash standing with stones. And um, there's some uh, wonderful um, levels at which you can support us from uh, uh, a whole dollar a month. That's less than a pound, of course. Peg it across. Um, <laughs> uh, the level it's not called the packet of crisps level though we should call it that now, I, I think we should um, yeah but it, but the point is it just helps us keep the podcast going and of course mm. more importantly well I say more importantly as importantly but differently uh, increase our output as far as filming is concerned yes uh, yes and going forward and yes. other stuff and hopefully also get more interviews and stuff yeah. yes yeah, basically, basically, the more support we have, the more time we can devote to this. So, 
that that's it. That's the equation. Simply put. So go yes. over go over to patreon.com forward slash Stanley Stones. Have a look. See if there's anything that yeah. uh, suits you better. All right. That's it. Take care, folks. Thanks again. Happy New yes. Year. Yes. And um, uh, yeah, we'll um, speak to you in uh, the new year. Oh, and of course, if you're on Facebook, of course, we're, we're there. So, you know, we'll speak to you there. But uh, as far as the podcast is concerned, it'll be 2019. So it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And I hope you have a wonderful festive time. <laughs> me- <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Sure See you folks. soon. Bye-bye. Bye.